Leadership You Love, the podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album, where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello, and welcome to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. Strangely enough, charting quite well on Apple Podcasts' music podcast charts, I'm led to believe, which frankly goes to show how much people are bored being stuck at home. This week, I'm actually going to depart from my usual format. If you're listening for the first time, my usual format means me starting by talking about this week's episode of Only the Shit You Love, the web series, and within about two sentences, drifting off to tell you about my justifiably unfamous high school bands, my unheroic sporting career, my uninspirational attempts at impressing girls, and other frankly non-essential elements of my never-to-be-published memoirs. This week, I'm not going to crap on about the bad old days. I'm going to let someone else do it. My friend, bandmate and creative life coach Tony Martin who, never mind scoring a reasonable chart position with his podcast, has actually won the best comedy podcast in Australia, was good enough to let me mine some gold from his equally unheroic youth. Tony and I spend many hours crapping onto each other on the phone, and Tony very graciously allowed me to record one such crap onathon, where we talked about how Tony discovered music, and what his musical education was like growing up in 70s and 80s New Zealand. We take Tony back in a time machine, just like the theme of this week's episode of the web series, and hear about how they only had two music programs on New Zealand TV, about Max Bygraves, about the radio station that broadcasted for one hour a week, and lots more. It's a rambling non-linear, stream-of-consciousness blarfest, just like every other episode of this podcast. But because it's the brilliant Tony Martin, I hope you'll find it worth having a listen. Okay, so let's eavesdrop on that telephone conversation. My whole high school years were spent living in a very small flat with my mum, who was recently divorced, and my half-brother, and we didn't have a stereo. So the only music that was coming into the house was via a tiny AM radio playing a station called 1ZH that was like a cross between 3AW in Melbourne and Smooth FM. <laughs> so the music was just, <laughs> for some reason, when I think about it, I think of Gilbert O'Sullivan. Do you remember oh, him? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course, absolutely. Uh, I, yeah, I had a conversation um, with a friend about Gilbert O'Sullivan not not that long ago and it was so bizarre because um, I had not thought about Gilbert O'Sullivan for probably 30 years until <laughs> just this year. So there wow. you go, yeah. Well, yep. the Carpenters were on. You would hear um, the Manhattan Transfer, bands oh, yeah. like that. Yeah. And then every now and then there would be someone interesting who would have a, a smooth enough song to be allowed onto the playlist. So like David Bowie put out Golden Years. Oh, yes. And so they would play that. And, you know, occasionally good songs would sort of slip between the cracks. But the only kind of interesting music I was able to hear was on TV. 
And New Zealand only had two TV channels in the in the late 70s. And there was only two music shows on those channels. And so it was quite strange to suddenly see someone like Iggy Pop. And this is the period of like pu- uh, punk rock and post-punk mm. rock. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff. And then I'm turning on the radio and it's like, why do birds? <laughs> That's the music I'm hearing on the radio. And yet, you know, on the covers of magazines at the news agent, I'm seeing, you know, Johnny Rotten and, and people like that. So there was this kind of yeah. disconnect. And it wasn't until yeah. I left school that I got finally, uh, this is in around uh, the end of 81, I got my own stereo. And I've actually written about it in a book that I did where I talked about how I had mm. braces. I had and we ha- I had what was called government braces because we our family couldn't afford for me to have braces on my teeth. So we had braces paid for by the government. And when I left school and I was now working as a forklift driver, the government now expected me to take over paying for my braces. And I chose instead to buy a stereo. And so the braces were literally repossessed by the government. And to this day, I have ridiculous wonky teeth, which are (laughs) a result of a desperation to hear something other than AM radio. We had TV shows. There was a show called Ready to Roll that was on Saturdays at 6 p.m. And then the news would come on at 6.30. So everyone in the country would watch Ready to Roll, which was half an hour. So they could fit in like seven rock videos. And they would usually be the most mainstream. (laughs) It would be like Billy Field's Bad Habits. (laughs) It would be, be, you know, maybe there might be. I don't know. There wouldn't be any punk rock, that's for Mm, sure, but mm. there might be cheap trick. You might see something like that. But what was amazing was that they always played the song that was at number one last. And in New Zealand, we had very different charts than you had here. Joy Division's Atmosphere was number one for three weeks. So for three weeks on New Zealand TV, people tuning in, like farmers tuning in to watch the news at 6.30 were copying Joy Division's Atmosphere in its entirety. And so I saw quite, if something interesting made it to number one, like I remember one for quite a few weeks, Pink Frost by The Chills was at number one. And so I would get to see the video for that. That was often my only way of seeing interesting music. And then there was a more adult kind of rock show called Radio with Pictures on Sunday nights at nine o'clock for an hour. That was very similar to your show here called Rock Arena. Oh, yeah. You're saying you only had an hour and a half of music on television. Of music videos. There was a lot of variety. There was like, there was a show called Happen In and it was like, you know, (laughs) there would be like guys in like suits that you would wear to a wedding would come out and sing Chim Chimney, Chim Chimney, (laughs) you know, something (laughs) like that. But in terms of rock music, yeah, there were only two shows in the 70s, Radio with Pictures and Ready to Roll. If they couldn't squeeze them into those and, of course, like I say, it's only coming out of the tiny speaker on your TV as well. It's not like a TV yeah. now. It's in yeah. stereo. You mentioned the chills before. So yeah. you would see New Zealand artists? Yeah, they would play them on uh, on radio with pictures. And I very, very dis- – one of my most clear memories was seeing the clean uh, mm. doing anything could happen 
anything could happen and it could be right now. That song, I remember seeing the clip for that and it was so raw and jangly and I'm sure you know about the Flying Nun bands and their sound. They all used to record, you know, all their albums were recorded on Chris Knox's four track in the lounge room of his house in Dunedin. So that was everything (laughs) had this kind of really rough sound to it. And that was really exciting to me because, you know, everything you were hearing on the radio was so slick and smooth and it was the era of um, not just ELO, but do you remember bands like Asia? It was like a super group. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of that Mr. Roboto you know, on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) And so to hear this jangly sort of thin guitar music that I later realised was all very influenced by the Velvet Underground was was quite exciting and and it was like you were hearing something illegal, you know. Yeah. So the Dunedin sound was, in fact, uh, a four-track recorder sound. Um, it's that's exactly what it was. You yeah. used to hear that you know that all of these bands recorded all of their stuff on this one recorder in, in Chris Knox's lounge room. Um, it 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 you paint a very um, uh, deprived picture there of of access to music. Did so was music not a factor for you? Like when you were growing up, was were there were there no musical idols that you had or not really. I remember when before, before me and my mum moved into that flat, we lived in a town called Thames, and I remember we did have a stereo there, and the first album my parents bought me, this is insane, was Sing Along a Max, Max, Max Bygraves. <laughs> that was the first album I owned, and it had, um, you know, Roll Out the Barrel on it. And then the second album they bought me was Solid Gold Dynamite. Do you remember those oh, sort of albums that were like 20 solid gold? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Often yeah, shortened yeah. versions of songs on the radio. Yeah. So I had a yeah. few albums in those days, but I remember we, you know, my stepdad had uh, almost all of his albums were by something called the James Last Orchestra. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was sort of easy listing. And I remember yeah. like a song would be in the charts and he, he and rather than buy the record, he'd say, yeah, I'll wait till it's been James Lasted and he'd buy the sort of instrumental <laughs> music version. And I remember he had two copies of Hot August Night, which was his favourite album, one for playing and one to just sit on the shelf never to be opened, just in <laughs> condition. So that was the kind of music I was hearing. And then I started to hear this interesting post-punk music just on TV and then when I finally left school uh, towards the end of 1981 and, uh, yeah, bought my first stereo, it was like a bungee cord, to use a, uh, a New Zealand metaphor. It was like a bungee cord snapping and suddenly then I just had to catch up. It was like I had to hear everything from the last 10 or 15 years immediately. So I was just buying as many albums as I could to try and to find out what I'd been missing all these years. How how did you figure out? what? Where did you get your information from? Well, there was the enemy, of course, which came, you know, over on a ship to New Zealand, so it was always mm. three to six months out of date. But we had this fantastic free paper called Rip It Up that was given away in the record shops that had really great uh, music reviews and, and detailed reviews of new albums and so I was just very much 
in the hands of the people who wrote for the enemy and rip it up. I would yeah. just buy whatever they told me to buy. If you know, new order is the big thing. Well, that's that's what I you know. I didn't seem to have any opinions of my own. And my, <laughs> the other influence I had was my older cousins were always sitting me down and putting headphones on me and trying to get me into the music they were into was prog rock. It was oh, like Pink yeah. Floyd and uh, Led Zeppelin, I guess, was was in that category and a lot of, um, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Yes. And the Alan Parsons Project <laughs> and that movie, oh, no, not movie, it, it was a, what was War of the Worlds? Remember yeah. that? It was yeah. that Richard Burton. <laughs> doing a narration of, you know, Martian invasion. Yeah. The chances of anything coming from us. <laughs> so I had all my relatives trying to push me down that path, down the triple album Rick Wakeman sort of path. Right. And I was more interested in magazine. That was, I remember, one of the first things I heard uh, on television was a song from Under the Floorboards wow. by, by magazine. And so I started to get into yeah. this English. I was a bit late for punk rock, yeah. but it was that sort of era of bands like Gang of Four and Television and mm. Magazine and Joy Division. And and th- those were the bands the enemy were telling me to, to get into. So I, yeah. I, I did what I was told. It really sounds like um, the same childhood I had except the cards that, that I have are chronologically ordered and yours have all just been thrown up in the air and landed in a pile. Like you've got prog rock and post-punk happening at the same time. That's um, right. It just, I should I should never complain about my deprived musical upbringing <laughs> because you've done it much harder. And, and there was no radio, like uh, I talk about the influence of, Triple R on me, and you know, I sort of talk about the that whole idea of um, getting <clears throat> getting a, a line in on the on the secret shit. You know, like you you suddenly the trap door opens and you you get you get led into the secret shit. That that for me was Triple R. But did you not have did you not have a radio station that, that had, was like uh, that, or there was no. Community radio, or not that I know of, there certainly wasn't anything playing like alternative music, but what we had was university radio stations. And in Hamilton, where I lived, <laughs> there was a radio station that broadcast for one hour per week. It was like from 11, 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. midday on a Tuesday morning. They would have one hour of broadcast time <laughs> and they would try and squeeze as many bizarre songs as they could into that one hour. But then in the, it was 1982, I moved to Auckland and I don't know the name of the station, but the, the university in Auckland had their own radio station and that was my stereo just was welded to that station the whole time I lived in Auckland for two years. And I remember... I can distinctly remember the first two songs I heard when I tuned into that station. It was uh, Talking Heads Pulled Up. Yep. You know that song? Yep. From the yep. first album. And Collapsing New People by Fad Gadget. Oh, right. I don't even remember Fad Gadget. I think it was one guy. I remember reading about Fad Gadget, but I can't cannot say I've ever heard a Fad Gadget song. But that was, yeah. you know, 
that was really opening a door. And it was it was filling in the pictures, if you like, that I'd been reading about in the in the NME because, you know, I'd get the NME and I'd read about all these bands, but I couldn't afford to, to buy more than, you know, one album every fortnight. So finally when I was able to hear university radio, I was, oh, okay, that's what, you know, these bands sound like. Could you but even buy these reading. records? Yeah, like- I bought a lot of... I was buying a lot of, um, you know, uh, sort of post-punk albums, but it was also the era of um, of the new romantics. Oh, yeah. And a lot of yeah. synthesis. You must have seen that book that came out called Sweet Dreams yeah. recently. Yeah. That, and it was all of that music. So, and, of course, the NME, even though they were incredibly cool, I think they voted the Human League's Dare as the best album of the year. So I was buying all that stuff, all of yeah. that very shiny, um, you know, synthesizer music from that period. <clears throat> yeah, were there were there cool record stores that were that specialized oh, yeah. in this sort of thing? Yeah, there, there definitely was. We had a lot of um, you know secondhand record shops as well, and I was just I was in there as much as I could, just fishing through racks and. You know, what it, you know, just buying things if they had an interesting cover. I, I would buy an album based on its cover if it was 20 cents, you know. Yeah. And just trying to catch up. I do remember the first album I bought, I remember this recently, was uh, the third Madness album, uh, which was confusingly called Three. No, called Seven. It should have been called Three. Uh, yeah, it was called yeah. Seven. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was the first album I bought. But the second album I bought was Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. <laughs> I've gone, this is an album I should know about. So I was doing a lot of that. I was going back and buying the famous records from the 60s and, you know, it was like wow. I was trying to crank, you know, it was like, you know, when you read about someone, I think the the, the filmmaker Paul Schrader who wrote Taxi Driver mm. was was belonged to some kind of religion where he wasn't allowed to watch movies. So he didn't see a movie till he was like 18 and then had to catch up on, you know, everything he'd been missing for his whole life. So I think that was what I was like with music. It was just grabbing at everything at once from every period. Yeah. And just, you know, cramming it into the top of my head. So the 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 big question then is what about um seeing music live? What 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 was the first live? band you ever saw and did you did you go to see bands live much at all well the first madness was the first like international band i remember seeing i remember someone uh i think i might have still been at school this would have been the absolutely tour which was the second oh, madness yeah. album they had the yep. song uh uh baggy trousers was at number one i think in the charts in new zealand and i remember a friend of mine's dad agreed to drive uh, a bunch of us up to Auckland to see Madness live at, at, I think, the Mount Smart Stadium. So that was the first international band I saw. But before that, when I was very young, I remember being taken to see Split Ends. Oh, right. And, but they weren't, it was like, an, as I remember it, it was like an afternoon show in a church because Split Ends were famous for not performing in normal venues. So they would come to a small town like Pyroar or Matamata and they would perform in like a church or something like that. And I remember being quite frightened by Split Ends who were in the Fair middle enough. of their, you know, their very made-up uh, sort yeah. of the Noel Crombie period. 
the first band I saw at a pub was, I don't know whether you would know a famous New Zealand band from the 70s called Hello Sailor. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They were on Countdown and stuff. Really? Yeah. I can't remember what their, what their hits were. Yeah. But the, the lead singer, I think he was the lead singer of the band, a guy called Dave McCartney, not McCartney, McCartney. Oh, um, right. He... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he um, he had another band after that called Dave McCartney and the Pink Flamingos, and they came to the Hillcrest Tavern in uh, in Hamilton. And I went. That was the first time I got to like stand, you know, six feet from a band, and and it was <laughs> it seemed very exciting <laughs> at the time. I I, I find um, sort of looking back that I've had this preference for New Zealand artists without necessarily realising that they were New Zealand artists. Like um, oh. I've had various phases in my life where um, I, I was, I've, I'm still a fan of Mike Rudd, who of course is an expat, yes. um, but I also had a, when I was sort of a proper, you know, um, hard rock loving guitar solo mad bogan in the mid 70s, um, I was pretty big fan of Kevin Borich Express for a while there. Oh, wow. and of course, he was. Um, and I was also a, f- a fan of the Swingers, um, yes. which, which was, you know, Phil Judd's band and who were so terribly kind of blighted by having such a ginormous hit single. Um, Huge. That, um, but, but we actually used to go and see them before that song hit big and um, – they they just sort of never recovered from that some, somehow or other. They just kind of never were able to top the sheer um, hugeness of that song. And then they ended up he and Phil Judd ended up in a band called Schnell Fenster. Who, I remember Schnell Fenster. I, yeah. had, I think they had two albums. I had one of them yep. was called The Sound of Trees. I think it was called. Oh possibly. yeah, yeah. Whisper was the was a single. I remember, I remember Schnell Fenster very well. Fast window, I understand it means in German. <laughs> oh, right. So um, I'm presuming then that you you weren't kind of um, gadding about seeing Dunedin bands um, wearing your best sort of black clothing in in funky little clubs in Auckland or something. No, the Dunedin bands very rarely came up to Auckland. Um, I sort of, I was in Auckland from 82 to 84, so I just missed a very kind of cool period of of, of uh, Auckland music. And yep. the band I remember seeing the most, who were just constantly on when I lived there, was a band called uh, Coconut Rough, who had a huge hit with a song called Sierra Leone. I don't know if you'd remember oh, that. Oh, yeah, yep. Yep. I think Mushroom brought, brought it out in Australia. I think it yeah. was played on the radio here. But they were just constantly on. And there was a venue called Main Street that that brought over Australian acts. I remember seeing Nick Kate at the birthday party. I remember seeing the birthday party there. Right. And so that was pretty uh <laughs> was yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a particularly cool period of 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 Auckland music. Yeah. It was always felt that, you know, we were like the flashy kind of Sydney and, and Dunedin or Wellington, I guess, Wellington and Dunedin were the much cooler kind oh, of yeah. down South, yep. uh, you know, bands. So 
yeah, I don't. I never got to see the clean. I had all of the the records. I had almost everything that Flying Nun put out. I would end up buying the chills and the bats and mm. uh, you know straight jacket fits and the clean. I had all of the records, but I can't recall ever seeing any of them live. Mm. Were you were you part of uh, a cool group of people? Or were there uh, were there cool people and uncool people? I suppose this kind of goes back to high school as well. Like, where did you sort of feel you fit in or not fit in, as the case may be? With with um, there's a TV you know, show. Uh, there's a great TV show from a few years ago made by Judd Apatow called. Um, Freaks and Geeks, which is actually about American uh, high school from about 1980. So it's it's precisely the time I was at school. And that is very much who I was. We didn't have, I don't remember the word nerds. Mm. I don't remember the word geeks, but I remember the word weirdos. Like I was, in, <laughs> I was one of the weirdos. I was into comic books and, uh, you know, comedy and comedy albums and everyone at the school I went to, it was a boys' school. We're just into rugby. It was just all right. about rugby in New right. Zealand. And I certainly I couldn't play sports. I was like a, a very skinny, kind of emaciated John Cooper <laughs> Clark looking. In fact, the first person I ever impersonated on stage was John Cooper Clark. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I looked like. Yeah. And um yeah. yeah, but I didn't have the accoutrements of coolness to to make me into a sort of, you know, because I didn't know much about music when I was at high school. Mm. So I certainly wasn't cool. I was just one of the weird kids that hung out in the art room and, and made tried to blow things up in the kiln <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and made my own films on Super 8 because I had a Super 8 camera. So I, I spent a lot of time making films. Did you ever encounter someone who made you feel bad about your music tastes or, you know, like sort of, um, you know, made, made you feel like you were behind the, the eight, you know, behind the curve sort of thing? I do remember punk rock really did explode in New Zealand and I remember kids who had stereos would, everyone had never mind the bollocks and the clash and who else, the buzzcocks. <laughs> And I definitely felt like I was missing out on something there oh. as I, you know, went home and switched on the radio to hear the Bee Gees. Um, <laughs> although I have to say that that's the other kind of music I remember really liking was a sort of funky kind. I remember I remember loving hot chocolate, things yeah. like that. Um, <laughs> you, years later, got me right into uh, Sly Stone, of course. Mm. I wish I'd heard that music when I was younger. And that mention of Sly Stone is the perfect way for me to butt in and segue into this. Only the bits I love. Yep, Sly Stone. One of the great tragedies of rock far more so in my humble opinion than the far more eulogised Sid Barrett, was the descent of Sly Stone into drug fueled obscurity. From about 1969 to 1973, Sly and the Family Stone made not one, not two, but five classic albums in a row, was one of the most original riveting live acts on the planet, was the star of Woodstock, 
and was the poster bearer for integration in rock music. Integrating funk, soul and R&B with your stereotypically white radio rock. Different strokes for different folks. That was one of his most remembered catchphrases. And in early sly music you can hear different voices, male and female, white and black, all locking into a groove without anyone dominating. Then of course he blew it all. Some find that more interesting than his music, but I'm bored by drug stories in case you hadn't noticed. I'm more interested in his music. If you want a recommendation about listening to Sly, don't start with his most famous album, There's a Riot Going On, which is the sound of Sly falling apart. It's what people choose to remember, but I don't reckon it's his best. Go earlier. And because there's too much going on in that earlier slide to describe, I'm going to play one tiny snippet from a B-side featuring one note on the sax. Treat it like a bookmark. There it is. Blink and you miss it. One note. Don't worry, if you're interested in Sly, take some real time and properly check him out. Okay. Sermon endeth, and time for part two of my chat with Tony Martin. So there was the, I was, in the end, my favourite music ended up being this weird kind of combination of, of, of James Brown kind of funk music and then very pasty, uh, nervous, <laughs> thin white men like David Byrne and Howard DeVoto <laughs> from Magazine and Julian Cope from The Teardrop Explodes. Those were the kind of two poles for me. <laughs> So, did you have punks in New Zealand? Like, did were there were there young people who adopted the fashion? There, there were punks in in the street who were wearing safety pins and mohawks, but I don't remember any punk bands. Right, you know, we had I don't I mean I'm sure there must have been some, but I don't remember that. I just you know it was really. <clears throat> It was that kind of Kevin Borich kind of music that you're talking about, Hello Sailor, DD Smash, of course, mm. Dave Dobbin. Uh, that was kind of your mainstream pub rock kind of music. And then there was um, the Dunedin sort of jangly, sort of terrible matted, you know, sweater kind of, you know, people wearing <laughs> terrible you know, jumpers with holes in them and yeah, playing yeah. a sort of jangly guitar Lou Reed kind of music. Those were kind of the two schools of New Zealand music, as I recall it. There was definitely a sense that punk was, um, you could see punks in Melbourne. You, you, you had to sort of strive a bit harder. You'd have to go closer to the city and, um, right, right. and generally, yeah, they were generally, I, I suspected, um, private school students. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Well, I remember seeing a, a story on the news about, you know, that the the punk was going to corrupt the children of New Zealand and there was, you know, yep. a journalist, you know, <clears throat> showing, you know, secret camera footage of someone with torn clothes and safety pins walking up the street and is this what we want? You know, it was like a <laughs> Yeah. It was, yeah. I don't remember. It was more about, you know, the clothes than the music, I think is what we knew about. Yeah. But that's all kind of 77, 78. Like that's right. By 81, you know, it was it was kind of gone, wasn't it, really? 
Mm. And I think the um, the new romantic era that you were talking about before, at what I remember distinctly at the time that felt like that was the real sign to me that punk had punk was dead, and not only was it dead, but it had made no difference because it seemed like the um, the people that were coming in its wake were actually reacting to it, and so we're, yeah. they were bringing back they were bringing back. Um, I mean, this this is all based on that kind of idealism of the punk era that we are rebelling against the excess of the past, and it felt to me like this was returning to the excess. You know, people yeah. had long hair again, and um, I mean, I I was sort of thinking that a bit at the time, but I don't think that now. I actually really like a lot of that stuff, and there was some. I think the eighties has given a bad rap. Because there was actually some really good music, um, yeah. In amongst the all problem of is we, when we think of that era, we think of Duran Duran on a yacht. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Duran Duran on a yacht to me was like punk rock. Might as well not have happened. We've gone back yeah. to you know we've got, but surely that's what punk rock was trying to rebel against if it was. Which it wasn't. I mean, it was just a bloody fashion. But um, yeah. But you know, I, I don't even still, mind that. I remember hearing uh, Marky Smith on the radio, though. That was sort of slightly punkish songs like um, "Totally Wired" and uh, yep. "The Man Who's Head Expanded." Or yep, that's, that was a single, I think. And so that felt. That had a bit of the raw energy of, of punk rock in the early 80s. There was still a bit of that kind of stuff around. I mean, oh, yeah, definitely. Well, there was, and there was the Smiths as well. How are you on the Smiths? I didn't really, I didn't, I just missed the whole boat with the Smiths. Uh, I know the enemy were insisting that I need to be listening to them, mm. but they were also insisting that I need to listen to the ABC Lexicon of Love <laughs> album. Yeah. I remember having that one. I don't think I owned yeah. a single Smiths album, but I had I had the Lexicon of Love. Yeah. Uh, I remember having, what else did I have from that era? I'm trying to remember what was. New, new Order uh, you mentioned before. New Order. I remember buying um, Laurie Anderson's Oh Superman. Oh, okay. Because that was one that, you know, the right. enemy had as one of their songs of the year. I was yep. buying a lot of stuff like that. Trying to think what America is, because what we're talking about is mainly um, uh, British music. I'm trying to think what sort mm. of American music we were getting. Talking Heads were definitely a big one for me. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, I mentioned television, that album, Marquee Moon, that was a mm. big one. Mm. Um, I don't, uh, American artists don't, readily come to mind when I think of that era. The, no. Apart from the few that were like Talking Heads is obviously an example and I'm sure I'm missing, you know, I'm sure I'm missing some some major people by saying this, but to me when I think about the 80s and America, I just think of a wasteland of shite like um, REO Speedwagon and <laughs> we built this city on rock and roll. That's kind of, you know. Yeah. Huey Lewis I think a lot of news. it was, but a lot of it was because we were very much, um, at least in where I lived in New Zealand, we were very much enthralled to the Melody Maker and the NME. Yeah. And whereas the Rolling Stone was a magazine that, if I think of the Rolling Stone in that era, I think of Jackson Brown being oh, on yeah. the cover. 
Yeah. You know, it just was. I don't think I ever opened an issue of the Rolling Stone before, you know, until the 90s maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, so all of, you know, all of the, the rock writing I was reading was coming from England. So I guess that, yeah, and the charts were very, it was a lot of English music in the, in the charts at that time. Is that because just generally New Zealand's a little bit more Anglophile anyway? Like, I think that must be part of it because we definitely were. You know, I I moved here in 1985 and, you know, I'll often refer to, I'll, I'll say to someone, you must remember that sitcom, Oh No, It's Selwyn Froggart. <laughs> and people just look at me like, like, what are you talking about? We just had a much more... Um, I remember, you know, the thing that sums it up for me is that, you know, the news on on New Zealand television was like a bloke in a tuxedo speaking in an English accent. And then you come over here and the news desk was like an American news desk with like yeah. two or three newsreaders on it. Yeah. It was much more, you know, we, we were much more Anglo than yeah. you were. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I know. You have you saw a lot of comedy shows that I never saw on normal TV over here, clearly New Zealand had a far more English kind of influence on the, just on the TV side of things anyway. The TV was very, what, what you noticed when you moved here was, hang on, you've got the ABC that seems to play almost entirely English shows and then you've got Channel 7, 9 and 10 that play American shows. All right. Whereas growing up in New Zealand, like, it's, this is what a night of television would be like. There would be happy days, and then that would be followed by the O'Neiden line, and then that would be followed by <laughs> Charlie's Angels, and then that would be followed by Are You Being Served? <laughs> so there would be this, like there was just this crazy mix of American and, and right. British television. Did you, did you ever catch up? Like did you get to the point you know, like obviously you had a lot of catching up to do, but did you get to the point where you felt you were up with things and you were kind of responding to what was now in music or whatever? I think so. I think by the end of the 80s and the early 90s I did and then you sort of, then the problem is, of, of course, I started working in radio myself and it, yeah. and working in commercial radio for a long time turns you against a lot of music. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just never want to hear "Summer of '69" again. Um, no, and and enough. now I I still feel like I'm catching up. Like you have introduced me to bands like um, uh, Robin Hitchcock's band mm. that was at the, the Soft Boys. Was yeah, the Soft band? Boys. Yeah, yeah. Mm. you got me onto that record, and you also put me onto the Big Star records, which of course most mm. people most people with any taste would have heard those. I only heard those for the first time about. 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you, you've got me onto The Who, who are a band who have just always been around, but I've never really taken an interest in them. So I feel like I'm still catching up in 2021. I'm still finding albums from 1973 that I haven't heard yet. <laughs> so uh, given that, 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 that this, uh, I'm, I'm sort of getting this picture that you have absolutely no um, linear progression in your musical um, discovery, your journey of discovery. So it's, it's all over so, the shop. Yeah, slapdash. Do you have, um, uh, you know, the, uh, nostalgia is a is is sort of my the theme of my 
podcast and yeah. stuff. And I'm I'm very interested in that idea that um, for for so many people, <clears throat> um, the music they like is is uh, rooted in a particular era because of who they were and where they were when they first heard that music. And for me, it's like that a bit, but it's kind of a bit more complicated because I have several eras, you know. So there's even <clears throat> even that whole kind of mid-90s um, mm. era evokes this kind of strong nostalgia with me because of what I was doing at the time and um, mm. and so forth. So does do you have that? Does that happen for you? Do you... Um, does certain Definitely. music take you back, and and you you're probably more um, you, you you love it more because of the personal connection that you had with it? Definitely, you know, it's the music I was listening to in the early '80s. So that's when I'm like between the age of 18 and 26. That kind of music is definitely like. How sad is this? I recently bought an album that I don't even like just because it was such a blast of nostalgia when I heard a bit of it on iTunes. <laughs> and it right. was the album Penthouse and Pavement by oh, Kevin, Kevin 17. 17. Yeah. Not even, yeah. There's a couple of good songs on it. I like yeah. the title track, but it's not a it's – it's really quite embarrassing stuff on, on side two. But it was just, I just heard a bit of it and it just took me right back to Auckland in the early 80s and I just – had to have that album. Mm. That was strange because I'm going, normally you would buy an album you love to get that kind of mm. feeling. But I have, I recently, um, comedian uh, Declan Fay recently tweeted an article about the first Replacements album. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and I got that out and I hadn't heard that for probably 20, 20, 25 years and that was a real that's actually that is a punk album, really, from the, the early eighties. Mm. But that really took me back. It's quite startling when you, when if you can find an album you haven't heard for twenty five or thirty years. That's really interesting. To it's like it is like a time machine. Well, anyway, I suppose I'd better um, uh, I'd better let the give the listener a break now. But uh, thanks for um, for joining in my crap on about your youth. Segment. Um, oh, thanks, David. I have to say, I have been loving hearing these episodes and realizing how very similar, <laughs> despite you know, <laughs> yeah, being in yeah. two completely different countries, how similar things actually were at that time. Yeah, except yours seems to have been so uh, incredibly uh, fragmented and shuffled around, and I'm amazed that you've actually managed to um, survive and and actually have. Um, musical, uh, you know, have a, have a kind of a history of liking music given how what a shit situation you were confronted with. So, um, so oh, well done. I know. If I just, if I think about my mum's AM radio, I, I'm, I'm right now picturing it in that room and the song I'm hearing is the logical song by Supertrunk. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of music I was hearing for years and years until I finally broke out of it. Well, I should probably find a Gilbert O'Sullivan song to um, finish up I'm on. To remember, but, I can't remember yeah. any of them. Well, he, uh, I only know him for two songs, right, and one one song is possibly, you know, uh, just 
blows Joy Division out of the park for being the most depressing song ever written in the history of pop music. It's called Alone Again Naturally. And oh, yes, yes. It's in, yes. in which the singer sort of talks about how he he nobody likes him and then he goes and visits his dad or something and his dad is really lonely and eventually dies friendless or something. It's just... Oh, my God. Uh, but, he also had this this sort of really uh, out of character, weird, jaunty song um, called I think it was called "Get Down." Um, oh. Told you once before, and I won't tell you no more. So get down, get down, get oh, down. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, get right. That was him, down, baby. Yeah, it was Gilbert O'Sullivan. So. The two, Claire? Did the, he have a song called Claire, I think? Oh, yes, he did. That's right. Oh, well, there's three now, yeah. I, I oh. made a playlist of that era um, thanks to Spotify and that's how I kind of came back to a, a lot of these songs that, that I used to hear in that, that sort of um, when I was listening to my mum's radio, things like um, Mouldy Old Doe by Lieutenant Pickle. Oh, yes, um, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Is that? It's almost an instrumental, isn't it? It is. Quality? Yeah, yeah. And it sort of makes me think that you just don't hear crazy shit like that on commercial no. radio anymore. Um, no, I think you don't hear weird instrumentals <clears throat> the way yeah. you did in the seventies. Like I don't know if you remember "El Bimbo" by Bimbo Jet. No, <laughs> it's the kind of it's this kind of electronic kind of cool music. The kind of music you would have if you were um, Alan Delon. <laughs> driving a, a, a convertible around <laughs> right. the sort of cliffs on the way to the Monte Carlo Casino. Right. And, yeah, very strange uh, <laughs> instrumentals like popcorn yes. would, would make it into the charts. Absolutely, yeah. So even, even in the early 80s you had things like Rocket by Herbie Hancock. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when was the last time, or well, Axel F, you know, from, yeah. <laughs> from Beverly Hills Cop, when was the last time you heard an instrumental? I know, and um, I remember Countdown. I, I distinctly remember on Countdown there was this song by Renee and Renata who were sort it of. called called Save Your Love, yes. my darling, yeah. Save Your Love. <laughs> and, and, you know, at the time uh, as a teenager or whatever, that shit horrified me. But I yes. now look back and think how wonderful, how sort of innocent and, um, uh, you know, that, 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 that it was almost like pop music hadn't quite figured out how to be cool, properly cool. So it, right. things like that would sneak in. Whereas now it seems to me that even the even the worst, even the most sort of um, corporate constructs that that are in the charts all sound like gangster rappers and are all yeah. incredibly street and you know sort of. Um, with the zeitgeist, there's no, there's no shit anymore. There's no, there's no, no laughable stuff anymore. No, everything's well produced, and and, yeah. and you know, you, it's impossible to film something badly because cameras now make yeah. everything look yeah. beautiful. Yeah, and I was talking about this recently with someone. You know, the shows on TV like The Voice and and those sort of shows, they're so slick. What I miss is the shambolic style of hot luck with Ernie Sigley filmed out of Adelaide where, where someone would just wander in off the street with no rehearsal and hand their sheet music to the band. 
And, you know, I remember seeing a woman wearing her wedding dress because that was the only nice dress she had and singing Keep Me Hanging On and coming in one line too late and never catching up with the band for the whole three and a half minutes. And you just, nothing like that makes it onto TV anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Everything looks so slick and professional. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. That's what I miss is shambolic disasters yeah. accidentally getting to air. Yep, that's right. The demise of shitness. We need some shitness in our life. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do? Yeah. What can we do to rectify this? Well, there endeth my rambling phone chat with Tony Martin. I heartily recommend you check out Tony's Bandcamp page. We can get lots of wonderful stuff, including his five times reprinted, fabulously written sort of memoir, Lolly Scramble, which is a guided tour through unintentionally comedic episodes in his formative years in audio book form read by Tony himself. And that's it for this week's episode. I'm afraid next episode you'll be stuck with me again, talking about bass lines, record stores, why I hated high school and other pointless stuff like that. Just thought I'd warn you. See you then. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash DamienCowDC. See you next time.